Please find your seats and turn with me. As you find your seats, please turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 3. On our journey through Peter this morning, we stop at verse 18 and try to put our arms around one of the most beautiful verses in all of Scripture. But before we begin, let me just again comment um, how important it is uh, for you to be a part of this body and all that is happening. It's so exciting. Uh, Robert thought he was getting five minutes to talk about the ministry fair, and I I said, uh, sorry, miscommunication. Uh, Don't have that, Robert. It's all about me. Um, But I promised that I would, uh, again, just say, hey, this is such an important time in the life of the church. And God has gifted you. He has. He promised he has. And we need your gifts to advance Christ's kingdom. So come out next week and be a part of what God is doing here at Orangewood. 1 Peter 3, verse 18. And to give you a background, because we've been away from this for a little bit, Peter's reminding us that we're going to suffer. And he's reminding us that we're blessed when we suffer. And he's reminding us that Christ himself has suffered. And this is kind of one of those crescendos that shows us what Christ actually has done for us through his suffering. Let's read words, God's holy and errant word together. 1 Peter 3.18. For Christ also suffered, or for Christ also died for sins once for all. The just for the unjust. That he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. Let us pray together. Father God, I thank you for the incredible privilege that is ours to gather around your word. It is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. Father, I thank you that your word is God-breathed, that we can trust it, that there's no error in it, and it will never lead us astray. And Father, again, this morning I come so humbly, I mean, I come in a sense uh, with knees knocking and realizing that, God, I do not have the goods to deliver the depths of this verse, but your spirit does. So God, I would ask that your spirit would come with power and that you'd be pleased to use a broken sinner. Father, you'd forgive my sins. And that, Father, that you would open up our ears to hear from you. That you would open up our minds to hear your truth and to be in awe with who you are and what your son has done. And in awe that your spirit fills us. And that, Father, you would open up our hearts to be pliable in your sight. So that, Father, you can make us more like your Son, our Savior, Jesus. And God, I also pray that your Spirit would empower our feet. That we don't walk out of here hearing this good news, this good word, and not have any change in our lifestyles. And Father, it's because of your kingdom. It's because of your glory. It's because of your fame that we pray these things. We pray them powerfully. In the powerful name of your Son, Jesus. Amen. The summertime for pastors means wedding season. Wedding season is here in full swing. I love wedding season. I had one yesterday. I have another one next weekend. And it's a time where uh, ministers like myself have the privilege of officiating wedding ceremonies. For the most part, it's a privilege every once in a while. 
But yesterday was a very special one. Yesterday, Joe Creech and I did a tag team ceremony uh, for one of my former students in my youth ministry, a really bright young man who was well on his way to success. And somehow, by God's good providence, he uh, found and fell in love with a beautiful woman from Columbia. And it's one of those deals you kind of look back and say, you know, wow. Uh, wow, Spencer, you really uh, are far exceeding anything we ever thought or imagined. But uh, great couple, completely in love. It's kind of one of those deals when they're together, you're like, okay, just stop touching one another. Let's just talk, you know, about our ceremony here. And Joe and I did the service. Joe uh, did uh, the service in Spanish, uh, the kind of the part to the bride. He did it all in Espanol. I decided to do mine in English. And uh, so... I spoke to the, the groom in English. It seemed to go better. Joe, I, I never heard Joe better, really. Uh, to me, he sounded great. Had no idea what he said, but uh, <laughs> trusting it was good. And yesterday's venue was one of the prettiest venues of all of Central Florida. We were at the Knowles Chapel uh, right there in Rollins College. For some reason, not everybody picks this beautiful place to get married in. And there we are. And if you know Knowles Chapel, it's got a long, beautiful aisle that the, uh, the bride is going to come down. And you're standing up front. And you got the best seat in the house. And you're watching everybody come. And you're watching the guests. And the great thing is, is, you know, no one cares about me. You know, they could care less that I'm there or what I'm going to say. They all want to see the bride. And so I do too. And I, I'm just excited. And the doors close when everybody's in place. And you know what's going to happen. The door's going to be thrown open. And there comes the bride. And I tell you, Catalina was an absolutely radiant, a beautiful bride. And the doors opened, and and there she was. And the bride began to be escorted down the aisle. And you know, I got emotional. And maybe it's because I have two daughters, and it won't be too long before one of them gets married. Maybe in the next 25 to 30 years, possibly. (laughs) And, And maybe it's because recently I watched Father the Bride, and my kid said, Dad, you're not crying, are you? Um, No, no, there's something in my eye here. And maybe it's because at that moment in the wedding, it's one of the most incredible pictures of who we are in Christ, his bride. And there we are being escorted down by the Spirit into the Father's presence because of the work of the Son. It's a picture of who we are in Christ, and I can't help but be emotional nearly every time. What this passage is telling us is good news. Orangewood, we have such good news this morning. The news that we have, I mean, really, these lips can't articulate the incredible goodness, the depth, the breadth of the good news that we have this morning. And the good news is this, through the work of our Savior, through the work of God's Son, sinners like us who deserve God's wrath, who deserve to be driven away from God's presence, through Jesus Christ, we can be brought near as a trophy, as a bride into the very presence of God. And you know, that is our ultimate purpose. It's not just that we get this incredible prize of being brought into God's presence, but there's where we belong. That is what we've been created for, to be with the one who has given us life, to be with the one who gives us meaning, to be the one who has created all things, to be with the light of the world, to be with Abba, Father. That is where we belong. And that is where Jesus escorts us into his presence. It basically is escorting us into paradise. And what Christ has done is leading us home. 
Just a few weeks ago, many of you know that my family and I piled into our minivan for our trek north and my yearly pilgrimage to my hometown. And there's many different modes of transportation we could choose. Uh, If we were intelligent, we'd fly uh, and then rent a car or something like that. Uh, We could take a train or even an auto train. Uh, We could take a bus, but why not just walk? Or (laughs) we could take a car, which we did, piling into our little minivan, including the Sears extra cargo stuff on top. It was the Griswolds. It was... uh, all the trappings of the Griswolds, it was quite, quite scary. But once I'm there, I want to know what is the quickest way home. Because really, there's different routes I could pick. I could, I could go up I-95 all up the coast and get close to Maryland and then start making my way over to Route 81. But I know the, co- the quickest way. I know the best way home is 95. And you know, once you get into South Carolina, 26 and 26 over to 77. And 77 picks up 81. And 81 will take me all the way into Homer, New York. And then I take Route 90 to Tollgate Road to 38A into Indian Cove. So there you have it. Who needs MapQuest? <laughs> See, I can tell the best way home. But in reality, there's many ways home. This text is a reminder That there really is for us, for those who have been made in God's image, for all of his children, there's only one way home. There's only one way to the Father, and it's through the Son. And not just through the Son, but specifically through the Son, incredibly, the eternal God became man through this second person of the Trinity's death, through his resurrection, through the unconceivable, the unbelievable, that God would love us enough to become one of us, through the unbelievable, that God would love us enough to rescue us, through the unbelievable, that God would demonstrate that love, that while we were still sinners, Christ would come. And not just come, but he would endure the humiliation from those of us who would not recognize him, would not worship him, would treat him harshly, would not believe him, and eventually nail him to the tree. And the love that would hold them there, unbelievable love. But the love that wouldn't keep him there. The love that he would have for us that would actually even conquer death and the tomb would be empty all so that we could be ushered down the aisle dressed in the beautiful garments of a bride into the Father's presence. Well, let me ask, we're going to ask three questions. What did Jesus do? How did he do it? And, and why did he do it? The first question is this, what did Jesus do? In verse 18, it says this, and it's again one of those things you read and you can just go in one ear and out the other ear and we can miss the incredible weight and gravity of this reality. But my brothers and sisters, listen, for Christ also suffered, for Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust. What did Jesus do? Jesus removed the obstacle that was in front of us that kept us from the presence of God. If you remember, as God's word tells us, God has created us for himself. Unbelievably, he's wired us for a relationship with the God of God, the Lord of Lords, the King of Kings, the God of the universe. And we were made for him. We were made to walk with him and talk with him and to love him and to be loved by him. But he told us that can only happen as long as we don't have this thing called sin in the way. And as soon as our forefather, as soon as the one who perfectly represented us, Adam, sinned, he was driven from God's presence. 
And that obstacle forever remained until Christ has come. See, what did Jesus do? Jesus came and removed the obstacle that separated us from God the Father. And how did he do that? He suffered and died for our sins once and for all. Once and for all. What does that mean? Well, about every decade, I fix something around our house. About, About every 10 years. And if I really fix it, I know that it's done when it doesn't have to be fixed again. Is that not correct? You know, usually with my skills and trying to help around the house, I don't fix anything. And really what I do is I tinker and I try and someone else has to tinker and try and eventually I call an expert and we get the whole thing done. Well, God tells us that we got this problem called sin that's separating us from a holy God. And he says, now listen, there's going to be no forgiveness of sin unless some blood is shed. And those in the Old Covenant, those in the Old Testament, uh, they were given a pattern to follow. And they were butchering ox and bulls and sheep. And they're trying to do this so that they would say, may this pay for our sins. We're going to shed blood as your word has prescribed prescribed for us to do. In hopes that, that somehow you will accept the killing of this sacrificial lamb. So that you can accept me. So that somehow this sacrificial lamb can cut away the barrier between me and you. And they tried and they tried and they tried. And year in and year out, they stood in the blood of animals and goats. And you know what? Their guilt never went away. And their sin never was really dealt with. And lo and behold, comes Jesus, God's lamb, God's provision. And the writer of Hebrews so clearly says, now listen, those, those bulls, those goats, they couldn't do it. All they were is they were one to point to one who could. And once and for all, once and for all, not several times over again, but once and for all, the God who is just is going to become the justifier and he's going to die for our sins once and for all. I love the way the writer of Hebrews says this. Let's look at Hebrews chapter 9. Just turn back with me a couple of books. You go back from Peter to James, then you get into Hebrews. Hebrews 9 verse 28 says this. So Christ also, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, he will appear a second time for salvation without reference to sin because he's already taken care of it to those who eagerly await him. But it's even better, I think, in Hebrews 11. Uh, I'm sorry, Hebrews 10. Hebrews 10, starting off in verse 11, the writer of the, uh, the book of the Hebrews is describing what the high priest did every year. And every year... They would bring in the sacrifice for his sins and the sins of the people. And every year on the Day of Atonement, they'd say, God, please accept this. And every year they stood and did this. And every day they stood in the temple and offered sacrifices every day over and over and over and over and over again. You want to know why? It didn't work. It didn't work. I mean, they they, they kept on having guilt. They kept on dealing with this. They, they, They couldn't deal with their sin. And so here's what the writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews 10, verse 11. Every priest stands daily ministering, daily, and offering. What is he doing? Is he sitting? No, he's standing. And he's offering time after time the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But he, and who is the he? Christ Jesus, having offered up one sacrifice for sins for all time. One sacrifice of himself for sins for all time. What did he do? He sat down. He sat down at the right hand of God. 
Why did he sit? Because the work was done. And the sacrifice was complete. And the only way that sin could ever be dealt with, the only way that we could be ushered into God's presence, the only way we could ever stand in the presence of a holy God is because Jesus Christ died and became our sin offering so that we could become free. And it worked. The tomb was empty. God accepted his sacrifice. And he sits because that work of that one-time sacrifice was complete. It is Jesus who has fixed our sin problem once and for all. But you know what? I still got a sin problem. How about you? I still got a sin problem. I mean, I mean it's, it's, it's just, wow, it's way too easy to sin. And I'm, I'm falling way too much. And I'm sitting over here. And I'm about ready to get up and preach. And I'm starting going through things in my mind. I'm like, oh, Lord, how in the world can I stand up in front of your people? If they knew the truth, they'd run me out. Because I'm a sinner and I still have a sin problem. And so do you. Don't we? So what does this mean once and for all? I mean, what does it mean? Because don't you, Christian, long for that once and for all? I don't have to worry about it anymore. And I don't have to wrestle with my financial situation. I don't have to wrestle with lust. I don't have to wrestle with pride. I don't have to wrestle with this anymore. What does it actually mean once and for all? Well, here's what it means. And two, two things. One is this. He dealt with the penalty of sin once and for all. Scripture tells us the soul that sinneth shall surely die. It also very clearly tells us who those souls are that sinneth. Everyone. Every one of us has fallen short of the glory of God. Every one of us has sinned. Every single one has fallen short. Every one deserves death. And God was very gracious. He told us the truth. He said, now Adam, listen, if you sin, you're going to die. The results of it, he was gracious enough. He didn't immediately fall over dead. And God provided clothing and provision for him. But everyone since Adam has done what? Except for Jesus. And he died too, but was resurrected. But the great news is, Christian, listen, the great news is this. Your sin, my sin, justifies a holy God's wrath. God should be really ticked at us. He should be so ticked at us that he wants to smote us off the face of the earth. And if he killed us, he'd be justified. But for his own, for those whom Jesus has rescued, the penalty of sin has been paid in full. Listen, paid in full. Jesus' death was satisfactory. Here's the good news. If you're suffering and you're wondering, is God just trying to pay me back? Is God just needling me? I mean, is he just, I mean, I'm doing some bad things, and so here's tit for tat kind of God. No. Now, we are going to suffer, unlike Christ, we suffer for our own sins. He suffered for our sins, although he was sinless. God's going to use suffering to make us more like Christ. But here's the good news, Christian, unbelievable news. You're not going to have to pay for it. Jesus Christ did. We are truly freed from the penalty of sin. Not only that, he dealt with the power of sin. Before the resurrection, sin had such a hold on us, such a stranglehold on us. We could only sin. We could never do anything righteous in God's eyes. We could never do anything pleasing in God's eyes. Nothing. We couldn't clean ourselves up. It was impossible. But now, through the work of Jesus Christ, our Savior, not only has the penalty of sin been broken, but the power of sin has been broken. And now those who still have a sin problem, who have been set free by the work of Christ, we can do 
that which is righteous. We can do that which is pleasing in God's sight. It's always going to be marred with some sin. But because the Father is going to see us and look down the aisle and see us robed in his son's righteousness, he accepts us and he is pleased with us. Yeah, I still have a sin problem, but I do know this. It was once and for all dealt with over the power and the penalty of it. Only Jesus could do this. We've got to understand this. Listen, only Jesus could accomplish this. The just for the unjust. You see that right there, and you might just buzz right by it. But it says this, the just for the unjust. One of the most dangerous aspects of traveling 3,500 miles on our highway systems at a very high rate of speed, I might add. As far as you know, I was going the speed limit. With my family until one of the most dangerous aspects of traveling that distance is using the bathrooms at the gas stations along the interstate. You know, once you get in there, you're thinking, oh my goodness, I mean, I'm not sure I got to go anymore. And, and then you think, you're looking around, is there anything here that I could use to clean this place to make it usable for me and my children? Because everything is dirty. And really, Anything you're going to use is going to be kind of like just smearing the grime from one place to another. You really need an outside agent. You really need something, maybe dynamite, to try to clean the place. But listen, here's the point. We're too dirty to try to clean ourselves up. We're too dirty. We can't do it. You see, we're not the just. We're the unjust. We're too dirty. All we try to do when we try to make ourselves right in, in one another's eyes and in God's eyes, all we're doing is moving around the grime. We need an outside agent. We need one who is without sin, and that only one is Jesus. He had to be just to be the justifier, as it says in Romans 3. Does it make sense? If Jesus wasn't born of a virgin, if Jesus came to this world like you and I did, he was already born with sin. He's already lost what is just. If Jesus, who was tempted just like we are in every way, and yet without sin, had Jesus failed one time, he is not just. And if Jesus is not just, then we cannot be justified. Are these doctrines important to us? And can we say it's not that important if we really believe in a, in a, in a, in a, uh, a Savior who is man? Can we really say that it's not really important that he's not born of a virgin? Can we really say it's not that important that he was born and that he remained sinless? Listen, if that's not the story, we have no story. If that's not the story, we're remaining in our filth and all we're doing is moving the grind from one place to another. But God provided the one who is just. For the unjust. He provided the one who knew no sin to offer himself up to sin to those who knew no righteousness so that we can be cleansed in his sight. How are you dealing with sin in your life? I mean, how are you dealing with that obstacle even now? And it's my hope and prayer. For some of you, you haven't embraced Jesus Christ as Savior. And let me tell you, no matter what you do, no matter what you do, you're just moving around the grind, just like us. That's all, all we did before we came to Christ. It's all you can do. Because you're not just. You're not just in God's eyes. But what about us? What about those of us who, by God's grace, are saved? And, and there's still some real deep, dark issues with sin in our lives. What do we do? Can we clean ourselves up? Why are we still struggling and the answer is we've got to continually go to the one who cleanses, the one who is just, and say, you know what? Can you please separate again the sins from far as the east is from the west? Created me a clean heart. 
Do not remove your Holy Spirit from me. Because I am a broken and vile vessel, but I'm yours. Cleanse me again, O God. Why did Jesus do it? So that he might bring us to God. Unbelievable. Why would God love sinners like us to that level? So that he could bring us to God. So that we could be with the one who created us. So that we could be with God, truly Emmanuel, God with us. And sometimes we forget that this is the ultimate prize. At the rehearsal dinner, I was talking to a gentleman, and he too graduated from Vanderbilt, and very smart, and he born in India and grew up here, and, and basically liked to declare to me, hey, I'm an agnostic. And he wanted to go on and declare, to tell me what he was doing for a living. And, and really, I just couldn't help but feel sorry for him. I'm saying, you got to be kidding me. You're living your life believing that God doesn't care? You're living your life as if he's not even there? You're living your life as if it didn't matter at all to God? How sad and how much joy, Father, thank you for ushering me into your presence through your son so that I can be brought near. And we're brought near is like a trophy. It's like a trophy that Jesus brings us to the Father. Look what I've done. I've rescued them. Look what they are in my sight. Look how they look in my blood. They're beautiful. They're cleansed. They're whole. They're pure. They're ours. Why do you do it? He did it to bring us to the Father so that we can receive the Father's joy and pleasure. We could live for his glory. And listen again, only Jesus can do it. You know, we live in a time where they say, hey, whatever works for you, that's great. But let me have my own religion. Let me have my own views. And Jesus was very, very radical. He stepped on this earth and said, listen, if any of you want to go to heaven, if anyone wants to be clean, if anyone wants to be whole, If anyone wants to have life and life abundantly, I'm in. Because there's no other way to the Father except through me. Jesus would say, I'm the way. I'm the way, not a way. I'm the way. I'm the life, life abundantly. I'm the truth. There's no way home. Without me, you're utterly lost. I mean, you're utterly lost. But with me, you'll find your home with the Father and I'll make sure you get, that, get there. Only Jesus could do it. There's no other way home. Who's leading you? Who's leading the charge in your life? Where are you looking? Are you looking to your own skills, your own abilities? Or are you looking to Jesus saying, lead me home? How did Jesus do it? Having been put to death in the flesh, but being made alive in the spirit. How did he do it? Let me tell you, I don't have the ability or the time to tell you this mystery, but God became man. God became flesh. The eternal God stepped into time, the one who created it. And he took on flesh so that he could die in that flesh to give us life. He truly died for our sins. But there's such good news. He's not in a tomb somewhere. The tomb was empty. He was made alive on that third day. Sin didn't win. Sin didn't conquer. And here's what it means to us. Sin doesn't win in our own life. Sin will not conquer us. We too can be alive in Christ. Even now. And that's why we sing. That's why we get the horns playing. And that's why we say crown them with many crowns. Because those of us who deserve to be dead have been made alive in Christ. Is that good news? Isn't that good news? Well, only Jesus could do it. And the only way he could do it was to become man and to put on flesh.
You know, Galatians 5, 22 tells us of the fruit of the Spirit. I'm looking over that way because there's an elder friend of mine who called it fruits of the Spirit over the weekend. And he asked me to open my Bible up to prove him wrong. I said, come on. The fruit of the Spirit. And in, in uh, Galatians 5, there's no, there's no laughing at that. There was nothing. There was like, are you still here? Okay. Thank you. Galatians 5, Paul is telling us that we've got to walk in the Spirit. He says we've got to put to death the flesh and the deeds of the flesh and walk in the Spirit and what Spirit it is that gives us life. In verse 24, now those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. In 2 Corinthians 4, verse 10, Paul calls us, listen to this, it's amazing. He says that we need to carry in our bodies the death of Christ, the dying Savior. Why? What is that all about? What is Paul saying that we need to carry around the dying Savior in our bodies so that we can be made alive in the Spirit? Hey, listen, when you, when you feel like you're a failure, when your sin has knocked you over, when you realize that all you can do is move around the grime in your life, look to Jesus. Look to Jesus and carry the death on that cross in your heart and realize he died for every one of your sins. The penalty has been paid. The power has been broken. And Christian, you and I can be made alive in Christ. Let's carry around in our hearts and our souls the death of Christ because right around the corner, we realize is also the life of Christ. And because he lives, we can live too. A bride always wants to look beautiful in her wedding dress and she'll take all the necessary steps she can to make that happen. And here's who we are in Christ, Christians. We are beautiful in this robe of righteousness and may we do everything we can to be presented to the Father in a way that brings Him glory and joy, in a way that presents us in a manner worthy of the gospel because you may see Him at any moment. As the worship team comes forward, we're going to sing about the Ancient of Days. And the Ancient of Days is Jesus Himself. He's our Savior. And you know what Jesus did? He came came to us and he threw open the doors that were closed. The door that was closed to the Father. The door that was closed. No access here because of our sin and unrighteousness. But it was Jesus who would say this. He says, listen, Jesus says, I am the door. I am the way. Are you standing there as the bride of Christ at the door of Christ being ushered into the Father? If so, sing to your ancient of days of great joy. Let us pray. Oh, Father, we thank you for an incredible love that you've lavished on on sinners like us, that we could be called the children of God. And oh, God, it's amazing. That is what we are in Christ. Jesus, thank you that you are the Ancient of Days, that you have opened up the doors uh, to your Father's presence, and your Spirit is leading us home. Oh, receive our praise. And Father, may we leave here continuing to look to you and to your son's death and resurrection to give us life, meaning and purpose. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.